I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and you're listening to episode 37 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, a show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators who are building remarkable tech companies in areas that are decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. And I've got a bit of a surprise for you with a twist to the normal show format. See, I always seek to find the best and brightest minds who are building tech companies all over the world so that they can share their expertise and experiences. But this time I looked right in my own backyard. This has been a long time coming and I've been thinking about doing this for months, but today you're in for a treat because I've asked the CMO and CTO of Verge and Powder Keg, the company that I'm building, to take a break from our day-to-day here at the office to share their expertise. And I feel so fortunate to work with both of these guys because they're not only two of the smartest people I've ever worked with, they're two of the smartest and most talented people that I know, period. We've been working the last couple of months to build something wicked, but we're not going to give any of that away in this interview. In this conversation with Robert and Kevin, we're going to be talking all about the process of building great products, both of which they've done to massive success. They've both launched multi-million dollar products built their customer base, and built scalable businesses. And we get into things like identifying the market and the product opportunities, learning how to evolve and grow a product with feedback, and they even share book recommendations as well as some hilarious stories. Let's set this thing off. Well, hey, thank you guys both for taking time to just jump out of our routine here. I know we're on a tight deadline uh, for Thursday, and I'm really excited about what we're about to launch. But uh, you know, the three of us have been working on this for quite some time now. Uh, and we're only scratching the surface, I'm sure, on the, on the work we're going to be doing. I thought it'd be a good time to pause and uh, just take a time to reflect and chat. I want to learn a little bit more about your backgrounds and what makes you tick and why product is so important to you. So I think kind of keeping the conversation around product is going to be really interesting because both of you have created amazing products. You've sold amazing products, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars of uh, amazing products, and I think you come from very interesting backgrounds. So I'm curious uh, to know, Robert. You know, entrepreneurship is really about seeing a gap in the market, creating a product or a service that fills that need in the market. I'm curious to know what your very first memory is of being like, hey, I should maybe create a product for that, or I should create a service for that. Well, my first company coming out of Rose Holman, uh, knowing communications, we went around and we talked to medical device companies uh, and wanted to understand what needs they had that could be met with mobile technology. This was back in the time period of Palm Pilots and Blackberries, and and we really had to educate each other, both our company and our customers, on what was possible. And we built out several different custom solutions and saw some repeating patterns where people called things different, uh, different terminology, and from that really built a suite of mobile applications, um, you know, for Salesforce automation, CRM, and all these things that we take for granted these days because a bunch of companies have built them over the years. I really enjoyed the opportunity to work and listen directly to customers and shadow sales reps and to uh, meet with users and identify what it is that really would empower them with technology and then build those and eventually turn them into products. Um, you know, it was a really great experience. So you're just coming out of one of the best engineering schools in the country, which is actually located in Terre Haute, Indiana, Rose Holman University. How did you even know to go and talk to these companies that were using med devices and figure out if there's technology? Well, had some great mentors uh, early on. Um, you know, being here in Indianapolis had uh, some great investor contacts that uh, helped lead us into the medical space. You know, with uh, Warsaw Pact and the companies here in Indianapolis, uh, you know, got a, a great chance to talk with some some leaders in the industry uh, and see what what the needs were. Nice. That's pretty fortunate. To, yes. I, I want to come back to your mentorship there, but I, I wanted to ask you, Kevin, the same question. Like, you're one of the most entrepreneurial people I know. Like, we're always trading ideas. We're always coming up with businesses that we'll never actually go and pursue, whether, you know, we're lock, walking to lunch or grabbing a beer after work. What is it that that was your first memory of being like, you know what, there needs to be 
a website that does this, or maybe it was even pre-website, like there needs to be a lawn care guy that needs to mow this lawn. Was there something like that that, that kind of sparked it for you? Yeah, I mean, if I think back, you know, I was the first kid at, at my high school in Zionsville in about 96, 97 to really start building out websites. And the first web product that I built, I never intended to be a product. I never intended to monetize the web property. It was just on my passion. I started building websites on automobiles that I, that I really loved, like the Dodge Viper and uh, other vehicles like that. Well, about what year was this? It was about 96. 96, um, nice. Yeah, I was like a sophomore in high school. I remember I, I built a site. It was, you know, like I, I did my diligence. I knew the car really well. I built a pretty, pretty exceptional site, you know, on Dodge Vipers, all the statistics related to them, all the kind of categorized, um, everything related to the car, all the images I could find. I remember I got it ranked on Yahoo, which was challenging at the time. You actually, it was a manual index. You had to actually kind of like reach out to actual people at Yahoo and ask them to be accepted. That's how you were ranking at that time? The, yeah, that was search engine optimization in the 90s. <laughs> In, in fact, the, the automated algorithms um, that early, like AltaVista and Excite, um, were actually terrible. And Yahoo was hand-indexed, and it was actually the best search engine because it was hand-indexed because the algorithms weren't good at that point, yeah. um, which was it's ironic when Google came along and just ate everybody's lunch. But anyway, I got it into Yahoo, and then I remember I you know, had a tracker on there, and I started seeing you know, I was getting thousands of visitors a day to the site. and That's a lot when there's... Most America still isn't online yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's on America Online. My site was built on America Online. MySpace is what it was actually called. Um, and I only built it because I was, I was uh, had an injury and I was in, in bed and I just saw a commercial for it. That's what got me doing web development. Oh, wow. Um, everything was hand-coded, you know. And uh, I remember, I think I saw it was like Commission Junction or Click Trade, one of those two uh, affiliate programs. It was real early days of affiliate. You made, like, literally, I made my own banner ads. Like, that was the, <laughs> that was the product side of this. I literally, like... You know, the, the, the tricks of, like, having uh, a banner that rotated, you know, red and black or something with, like, a increase your web speed by 100%. You know, you do whatever banner would pop the most, and you'd get, like, 25, 50 cents a click. And I remember I got the first check for $800 um, for a given month, first month doing it. My parents were like, there's no way that'll cash. You know, what is this? Is this a joke? And I brought it into school and I showed my friends, uh, Jeremy Derringer and Aaron Aders and a couple other kids at, at school, uh, Mark Lefay and people like that. And they, uh, and everybody was like, are you kidding me? And these people are like delivering pizza and stuff like that. You can make this, you know, doing web projects. And I was like, yeah. So I showed some of them how to do it. They ended, uh, Jeremy and Aaron ended up, ended up becoming my business partners at Slingshot. But that was kind of my first, first foray into product, but it was never meant to be a product. It was just, I was passionate about cars and realize I had traffic I could monetize but it's pretty awesome when you can just like follow your passion and it leads to something that you end up with a couple hundred dollar paycheck yeah and up being I mean in high school like over two grand a month wow 2,500 bucks a month was about where I was at when I graduated that's awesome help pay for college but yeah I I think that passion has to lead energy has to lead yeah if you're gonna do something exceptional did you guys feel like once you created that first version of the product like you had made it and it was just sort of like, wow, this, this is it. And you just wanted to like do more of that or were there early challenges that were kind of like roadblockers along the way that made you second guess it? Well, on my end, I knew that we were delivering value to our customers. And so from that perspective, I had very high confidence that I wanted to keep doing what I was doing. I wanted to make it even better. But as far as the overall revenue model of the business and, and making it sustainable and, and keep growing, that was a harder part, you know, because it was a long sales cycle for the first company, you know, in the B2B uh, space where it wasn't yet cloud-based or software as a service and it was installed. And so you had to work with IT organizations and all that kind of stuff. It was a lumpy uh, <laughs> revenue model. Uh, where it was a little bit less predictable as far as managing headcount and things like that. So figuring out the right business model, you know, was was more of a challenge of, you know, where exactly is this going to land? But but with the North Star being the product and what is it we're really doing for customers, we always got great feedback from customers that, you know, what we were doing was giving them value and they wanted more and, and we were happy to give it to them. Do you feel like it's important to have a North Star? Absolutely. Why? I think that there's a lot of things that come your way to uh, make you question yourself. And if you don't have some kind of framework that, that keeps you grounded on what it is that's important or why your brand exists or like why you have a right to win in the market, then 
you, you can fall off your course. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to have something that you're, that you're anchoring so that when you're really challenged that you can go back to that and say, is this true or is this not true about what I'm doing? I, I feel like um, that's one of the things that I witnessed firsthand, Kevin, when I was working with you at Slingshot. You know, obviously I'm fortunate in that I've got a snapshot of that trajectory that you were on with Slingshot just as you were growing like gangbusters. I think we went from $5 million in revenue to over $11 million in revenue, all bootstrapped that year. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is largely due to this North Star of serving deserving brands and helping them become digitally relevant, yeah. which meant creating content that works um, and, and works long term, not just for the algorithm as it is today, but something that is truly going to add value. Yeah, I think we ultimately understood that if a, if a company wasn't deserving, Google was ultimately going to figure that out. So we had to work with brands that were deserving of the rankings we were going after mm-hmm. um, for the long play. Mm-hmm. You know? But what what other things uh, along that way to the North Star help keep the company focused on that North Star? I mean, in transparency, the North Star at Slingshot was having fun. Uh, I think, you know, it was built from a bunch of high school friends and we enjoyed working together and we hired people we enjoyed working with. Hmm. So, you know, and digital relevance reserving brands was a, was a great North Star for the business itself, but I think at a deeper level in the culture, uh, those people came together to, to have fun, you know, solving complex puzzles. So, you know, we came to work because we really, really liked the people we were working with, and that inspired us to work harder and to pull the crazy hours and to, to do the uh, crazy feats that we pulled at that company. Yeah. Well, I know it started as a service business, mm-hmm. purely like based off of grit and getting things done relationally. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you decided to productize what you were doing and build technology. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that decision? Yeah, sure. Um, that was a that was a nice day. I remember we we were having, we were obviously, we were a services business. We were doing mostly web development with an eye on search. So we were taking on some large e-commerce products. Uh, we were built like uh, Family Leisure, for instance, when they uh, rebranded to, from Watson to Family Leisure, which is a a local indie company that sells uh, patio furniture and whirlpools and stuff like that. Um, you know, we had these revenue peaks and valleys that were driving us a little bit crazy. And we actually had salespeople where we got so booked out, we were getting popular in the city, we had to let our salespeople go. Like, you did t- such a good job, you go find another job, you know? Wow. Um, which was really frustrating because we couldn't scale. Like, you know, we couldn't find enough of the good, the right dev talent, you know, managing our bootstrap books was was tricky. And I remember Aaron Aders, um, you know, one of my co-founders came in and was like, hey guys, I got this idea, you know, a lot of what we're doing right now from a search standpoint um, can be, is somewhat scalable. You know, we have internal resources doing this, doing content on-site and off-site. What if we, what if we were to build a, a distributed workforce model where these people could do this from home? And, you know, sometimes you get those ideas passed by you where it's so obvious you don't even question it for a second. And I remember Jeremy and I just heard Aaron say this, and we're like, "Yeah, let's do that." Um, so, so like, is that that day we just sat down and started inking out how the distributed workforce model would work, and then how we would price those services and package it all together. Um, and that was the thing that 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 allowed the business to scale so quickly. Um, we were able; we were the only you know company in our in our space for a long time that had the ability to leverage you know three to th- three hundred to a thousand people at once. On a, on, a, on a search campaign. Um, so that was pretty incredible. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Cool insight to be able to see how you can actually switch things over and actually scale like that. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. We had the product up probably, we had some good coders, and we had the product up probably within a month. Wow. Um, and then we had, uh, we literally had the, the, the scaled workforce working internally um, at our office for maybe a couple weeks just to work all the kinks out. You know, and just working with them directly. You know, how's the software working? Do you need any help from us? And you know, after a couple of weeks of working with them, then we we're like, all right, just stay home, work through the system. That's awesome. I thought that was a good day. Yeah, it was great. I know, uh, Robert, you were talking about some of the issues with scaling and revenue was kind of lumpy, as you put it. Um, what were some of the issues that you ran into um, as looking to scale? Was it as simple as? Oh, here's here's the idea. That's the product we need to build. Or was it more of kind of the classic? 
here's what we have. And then you get some feedback. You've got to like pivot and go a different direction and say, okay, now here's what we have. You know, what I found is that for a given company, there's uh, several different points of success when it comes to scale, meaning it's not just one linear progression that there's, you know, you might hit a wall where you're at two to three million and you're trying to get to five and it, you can't just add incremental resources. You have to fundamentally shift, you know, whether it's making additional hires or it's changing your underlying architecture or something creates a chicken or the egg problem of do I go ahead and spend and hope that I make it or do I try to get there without the spend but then I maybe you know suffer performance issues or there's some other scaling challenge that because I didn't invest that I'm not able to make it to that level and so like what Kevin was saying of needing to switch over to this distributed model uh, for workforce management in order to to get to the next level I feel like most companies go through that type uh, and products go through that type of journey of of hitting some kind of bottleneck whether it's a code bottleneck or an operational bottleneck and then having to really reinvent some kind of process uh, in order to, to change what the resources look like relative to the overall size of the business so you know the last uh, mobile app project that I worked on you know one of the things we were doing was delivering a comprehensive set of functionality from a B2B standpoint for customers who couldn't afford to buy a big name brand off the shelf solution um, but we were able to provide that on a smaller scale uh, to a large number of companies and figure out a, a monetization model that that made that work so hmm. a lot of times it's about figuring out you know how do you have the your cost structure right in order to make it so that you can bring your product to your customer where where they can meet you as far as the price point and the com complexity and all those types of things. Do you remember making your first sale? I remember making my first sale, yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, my first paid development project uh, was building an inventory management system for a transmission shop in junior high. Really? Yeah. Uh, my, my father's friend... So that was your first product. Yeah, that was my first product. Uh, I, and I remember uh, thinking, like, hmm, now that I've built this for my dad's friend's transmission shop, maybe I should go door-to-door -door and go to other transmission shops and saying, hey, you probably have inventory needs. Uh, and so I, I've been thinking about how to, how to build businesses off of software products for a long time. That's awesome. And did you... No, I never did because I got interested in, in some other projects. Um, you know, then I became a student computer facilitator for my school district uh, where I ran fiber optic cable and, you know, started working with Cisco equipment and, and getting certified and going more of the IT route, which you, has been really... CCNA. Yeah, which has been really <laughs> helpful for me to have both the DevOps side as well as the, the programming side. And, yep. T tell me about why that's important for a layperson that, I mean... I've spent some time selling and marketing infrastructure, and I've spent time selling and marketing software development. So I, you know, I have some ideas of how those things are interconnected. But but maybe for uh, someone that's new to technology or has never touched the the tech, why is it important to have some knowledge on the DevOps side and the programming side? Well, I think especially now with so many cloud um, providers uh, that are offering very you know, easy to get started and easy to scale models such as Amazon Web Services. It's valuable to know that you don't, where you need to invest and where you don't need to invest, right? So I, I think that it's really helpful to uh, understand the underlying hardware. But of course, you know, with my computer engineering degree, that makes sense that, you know, I'm thinking about it both in terms of hardware and software and how to get the most out of the hardware um, and, and not have to... Uh, rely so much on the software optimization and, and, and bridge that gap. The more you understand about all of the tools that you're using for your business, the, the better. One of the things that I always uh, respect about you, Kevin, is uh, uh, this goes to knowing all the tools in your business. You understood every piece of that business at Slingshot when we were working together there. And since we've worked together here at Verge, you've been interested to know and understand every facet of the business. How does this work? And how does this content play with this product? And how does this product play with this customer demographic? Um, is that something that you've always been inquisitive about? Or is that something that you've learned 
as you've um, you know gone your career in consulting, or um, even as you've taken the reins as you know, CEO of some high growth companies? Yeah, I think it's I think it's part of my personality. You know, I have to know how everything works. You know, like you, you know me personally, I spend a lot of my time trying to figure out how the universe works. You know, like <laughs> I want to know how everything works. I want to know how everything fits together. Yeah, and I want to know what are the levers at the top. Um, so I, I think it's just it's just hardwired into my DNA. You think that's been uh, helpful or a hindrance to you building products? Sometimes it means I can I move a little slower than I'd like. Uh, you know, like for Slingshot, I wrote a 100-page page business plan before I became CEO of that business. I wanted to know ins and outs of everything of how that business would work before, mm-hmm. before I really got involved. That took a month of, like, deep dive, you know, like a lot of introvert time. And, you know, the, the culture of today is fail fast and move quick, and sometimes it makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, but I'm getting better at understanding how to use my intuition which is really helping me with that. That, that completely resonates with me as well, um, both in terms of uh, going a little bit slower and then the, the intuitive side of things. I, I think, for me, the process is about building a mental model of how everything fits together. How does our messaging fit with our brand and how, how are we delivering value to our customers and what's our pricing model and all those different things. And then when you have that model in your head, you can process things faster basically than you can in the real world, right? Yep. And that means that you, you get to this point of understanding where you can really explode with with intuitive creativity. And I think that that's really, really important. So there's an investment up front to get to that, right? Um, I remember, you know, being in school and feeling like I wasn't the smartest in terms of raw memorization, but I took the time to really understand the material, and then that meant that I could apply it better. And so it's always been about applying the knowledge, uh, you know, where I found it to really matter for entrepreneurs. And now I'm hungry for as much information as I can get to build out that model even bigger, to see how more things connect and, you know, make links between areas that maybe don't seem like they're connected immediately, but that's where most innovation comes from is those intersections. Absolutely. I've seen it firsthand with both you and with Kevin. So when we come back, I want to dive into applied knowledge and how to make those connections that can make ultimately a better product that sells more and serves more people. Thanks for listening to Powder Keg Igniting Startups. I wanted to take a minute to make sure you know that this episode is powered by Verge, a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley. Verge has hosted more than 1,000 entrepreneurs to pitch their companies at our events around the world in cities like Indianapolis, Indiana, Kansas City, Missouri, and Nashville, Tennessee. Those founders have gone on to raise more than $500 million in capital collectively and are disrupting industries, creating wealth, and changing the world. These are their stories. And if you haven't subscribed to Powder Keg yet, it's not too late. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, iTunes, Google Play, all of the major outlets. And you can find all of the links to subscribe as well as show notes and transcripts at our website, powderkeg.com. So that's powderkeg, all one word, dot com. If you have an iTunes account, we've created a handy link for you. Just go to powderkeg.com slash iTunes. That's going to take you directly to our show where you can subscribe, leave a review, and see all of the incredible episodes from past guests, including Brian Clark at Rainmaker based in Boulder, Colorado, Karen Nartman at Upfront Ventures in Los Angeles, California, and Max Yoder at Lessonly in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's your subscribes and reviews that help us reach more people and share these founder stories from beyond Silicon Valley. So again, that's powderkeg.com slash iTunes. And we're back. And Kevin, you were just sharing a story that I want to make sure we capture here because I think it's it's a crazy story and, and kind of ties into what uh, Robert was talking about about understanding both the development side and the DevOps side. Um, and it was one of the sites you were working on when you were in high school, right? Yeah, and again, I think a lot of these experiences we have as kids kind of shape us, um, especially on the, the web product side, I guess. But junior year, I got ambitious, and I bought a domain, crazyvideos.com, and I was going to build basically what, you know, the vision was something similar to like a YouTube where you could upload your own crazy videos and I knew it was a high bandwidth product that I was building, and I expected it to get a lot of traffic, so I signed up for an unlimited hosting account, which was kind of expensive for me in high school. You know, I was using a lot of the money from the Dodge Viper site and stuff to pay for this hosting account, and it was unlimited. Well, 
made the site, you know, it was working well. Uh, and then because of my knowledge with Yahoo and the connections I kind of made there, I got it ranked on Yahoo for some really high traffic video phrases, like funny videos, hilarious videos like that, that were way higher traffic than the Viper uh, keywords. So I was getting, you know, tens of thousands of, of visitors a day to a video site that was using a ton of bandwidth. And you remember back in the 90s, videos, I mean, that's a lot of bandwidth. So, you know, everything was running smooth and I was just about to start getting, you know, ads on there and start monetizing the site. Um, out of nowhere, got a got a letter in the mail, you know, official letter. My parents got it, you know, and pulled me aside. And Kevin, what's this going on? We're being, you know, basically the attorney from this company, Burley, has reached out to us. We owe them, you know, this obscene amount of money and and I was like, oh, that's unlimited bandwidth. <laughs> and it, it pulled out a clause in the contract that was like unlimited bandwidth starred, you know, and it had a little just clause that there was a limit on it. So they were basically lying in their advertising. Um, but Maybe this pen- was a hosting company? Yeah, it was a hosting company called Burley. Um, I don't know if they're still around, but, um, you know, my parents were just like, you know, we're not, we can't afford this. And I hadn't really fully monetized the site. They're just like, we need to, you need to shut this down and we'll take care of trying to get this figured out with what you owe this company. Um, I ended up getting out of owing them any money, but kind of let that dream slide. And then, you know, could have created the YouTube years down the road. I see YouTube. I'm like, mom, dad, what the, you know, (laughs) uh, if only you'd have had Google money. I know. But yeah, it's just, yeah, plenty of things like that. When I was a kid, I had plenty of things that could have done well if it wasn't for mom and dad. Just kidding. I love my parents are great. It's like one thing. (laughs) It is sort of like one thing having a lightning strike. But then you gotta like capture the lightning in a bottle. You gotta package it. You've gotta monetize it, or you gotta go raise capital so that you can fund the thing. And that's always an interesting adventure, um, or not, if you just decide you don't want to go down the legal route and dealing with some hosting company trying to sue you in the '90s. Um, but getting sued in your high school is no fun. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, but I want to go back to the the conversation thread that we were on uh, when we were talking about making connections and how you figure out how this product fits together. Seeing, seeing how you know, this idea uh, has potential to become this product. And, and even relating back to that capturing lightning in a bottle analogy. I'm, I'm curious, Robert, I mean, you've had what? Five, six, seven, 10 startups that you've uh, been a part of, yep. building the first version of? Yep. Um, what, what have you seen in those early starts where like what what separates the ideas that catch on from the ones that don't? Thing that's in common with the companies that have been successful is really focusing on a, a need or a problem um, that's in the market, as opposed to being overly focused on what I build is pretty and amazing and somebody must want to buy it. Um, you know, all of them have started with with a seemingly very rational argument for why like this product should exist, why this company should exist. Um, but usually there's a reason why there's not already a solution or, or a solution that looks like the one that you think is the best one, right? Whether it's a government regulation or it's a scalability issue with technology or the technology that you really need for it to be adopted isn't, doesn't exist yet, right? I think about, say, voice recognition and the long history um, that it's had where, you know, for... Dictation, you know, there were specialized software programs that you installed for that, and those got better over time, and now you have voice assistance that, that has made it even easier to use, and obviously on our phones and things like that. Like, you know, s- sometimes you have a great idea for a product, but it's it's just ahead of its time. And I've certainly done that. I've, I've built products that were ahead of their time, and, and I unfortunately had to look at it and say, you know, we just, we hit the market at the wrong time. Focusing on... What is the problem that you're really solving? And then thinking, why do I have a right to win? What is, what is unique about the resources that I have access to? Uh, what I know um, that makes it so that now is the right time to capture that is, is really what makes it the lightning in the bottle. How do you know when to put an idea down? Well, I think that you should always put it down. Um, but as far as following through on it, uh, Man, that's a tough question, right? That's a that's a, a billion dollar question well, and that, right there. And that, that's more what I was asking: is how do you know like when to like put it down? Like Google Trends. And, and it, <laughs> there you go, right? Yeah, Google uh, Trends. I, I will. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very practical Kevin, you're always one to consult the data. Might as well. That is a practical answer. I mean, these days you do have more information, 
at your disposal if you know where to look of like what is the latent demand out there for for what I'm doing. Let's um, talk, let's talk about that. Like let's say we have a product idea. How would we go about validating that with third party data? Obviously, you could validate it by going out and shopping around to potential customers and saying, hey, would you buy this? But what are some other ways? I mean, you mentioned Google Trends, Kevin. What other ways would you guys go about? I mean, Google Trends and keyword research is a great place to start, in my opinion. When you say keyword research, you mean keywords like through organic search? Yeah. Um, any, any keyword research tools you know, that, that are accessible these days. Google's gotten a little bit more constrictive about what they show you, but you can use AdWords tool to just get an understanding of what's the demand for, for a given product or service. And if you don't find much traffic, then you're in a whole different story, which is, or a whole different situation, which is now you're going to have to like push content marketing out that's going to create demand, um, which is much more challenging than actually just taking advantage of demand that already exists. Not that it's impossible, it's just much harder. <laughs> yep, I've, I've been down that path of starting a company that the Google Trend graph looked great. It was like this. Uh, and, and when I say this, for up those who are listening, right. it's, it was up and to the right. Uh, it was pretty steep up and to the right. But you zoom out on the graph and you look at the legend and it's like hundreds of visits. You know, it's up from dozens of visits to hundreds of visits. Um, and it was just the early tale of an exponential growth of a market that opened up about five years later. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so that's, that's the other side of it. Not only could you be too early for the market um, or the technology, but you could be way too early for the market as well. Yeah. Other, other tools or um, strategies that you'd suggest in terms of like defining whether or not this is actually a product that should be built? Or do you usually err on go ahead and build it and see what happens? I mean, I think it depends a little bit on what your belief is on who your customer is, how many there are, and how you're going to reach them, what the price per customer is going to be. I mean, the lower you can make like the shorter your sales cycle, the lower the price point, all those things makes it easier to just get started, right? So I tend to err on the side of put something out there that, that starts to capture demand. Like an example would be you should build some piece of content tied to what it is that you want to create as a product and then start offering that as like a downloadable resource on a website that you get emails uh, to subscribe to, to download that resource. And then you can do some basic social media, uh, like marketing advertising for that resource, and you can start to see, is there traffic that will drive and is interested in consuming this type of content, there is a need, and continue to build it out from there, where you already have built out some of your potential customer lead list. So that's one technique. Yeah, that's, that's a great, uh, great technique. Kevin, are there things that, that you did at Slingshot in kind of honing in on your target market because I remember when we first met and I, we were actually a client of Slingshot at the time, you know, you, you guys were starting to hone in on who your target market was, but at first it was pretty much anyone that would write you a check, which, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs find it's them deserving. Yeah. How did you start to hone in on who your real target market was and decide to start to go even upstream? Yeah. I mean, that became a financial equation at some point, you know, um, Spoken like a true finance major. <laughs> you know, like, you need to scale your business. Once you've got a large staff, you want to be able to support that staff properly. You don't want big ebbs and flows in your cash flow. And and we were still bootstrapped. We had we had people who wanted to invest at that point, but we were, you know, not on board with that. You know, my partners and I were wanted to be free, 100%, uh, I guess. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, we didn't want to create peaks and valleys in our cash flow. So we, we basically kind of picked a price point. We liked, for in this case or situation, we like $10,000 a month for each client. That was the target we were looking for, which fit into a certain quadrant of companies that, you know, where that was a line item in their expenses that kind of fit into their financial models. So um, we ended up, and we ended up kind of uh, breaking that code and, you know, hurt because of it. You know, we, we, uh, uh, we couldn't, hold back the ambition to take on clients that were hundreds of thousands of dollars a month when, when we had the opportunities come at us. And what that ultimately did is, you know, it came back to bite us because when you lose a client that's a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, <laughs> you've got to make some cutbacks. Yep. So we definitely suffered from that and our culture took a hit, you know, when we lose a client like that because you had to make cutbacks. Sometimes those cutbacks weren't ones you wanted to make. Yep. So, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think understanding the financial model related to your ideal customer as well as the other kind of softer qualities that go along with it is really important. And once you set those codes into place, you know, even if something seems enticing, you know, double check yourself not to break them. Mm-hmm. Good, good product lesson learned. Pricing, pricing is just just as much a part of product as the packaging is, sure. um, which is that's cool. interesting. I'm curious to know what products you guys love, whether it's business tools or no iron shirts or uh, <laughs> whatever whatever the case may be. Sorry, we're all laughing because Kevin freaking loves no iron shirts. Anything that makes dressing easier. Like I like the Einstein thing. You know, he wore white shirts. You look at Steve Jobs, saying, you know, these guys, they're all... You really Zucker, branched out Zuckerberg. into blues and, and lavenders. You know, man, just similar colors. No <laughs> iron. You don't got to waste your time ironing. That is one waste of time, in my opinion. <laughs> You're always fine. So, so no iron shirts. Other products you guys love? I love Inbox, uh, the Gmail program. Yeah, what do you like about it? I like that it included the boomerang feature for Remind. Uh, that really has made a difference on my ability to stay on top of responding to people, but also having a clean inbox. Talk, talk to me about that feature um, for those that may be un- uninitiated to Boomerang or that functionality. Uh, you have an email come in your inbox, you look at it, and you just make a quick triage type of decision on, on what you're going to do with it. If you're not going to respond to it right then, then you can say, remind me at the end of the day, tomorrow, next week, next someday, and, uh, and move on with your day. And then you also... You can group the emails so that uh, they only come in once a day. So for me, uh, looking at, let's say, social media updates, uh, I do want to look at them, but I don't want to get constantly interrupted throughout the day with this is what was on Twitter, this is what was on Facebook. And so being able to skim that once is really useful. Things like that for uh, looking over customer support tickets is a great thing to look at like once a day. So reducing the number of interrupts, that come in through email in a day makes it so I can focus on building product uh, while still being responsive to email. Can you guys think of a product that, that's less than $1,000 that you've spent money on in the last year that is well worth the price? Pranayama. Pranayama. What's Pranayama? <laughs> uh, it's a breathing app. I think, uh, you know, I think you might have talked about this before, Matt. I, but I bought it. Yeah. We kind of start our, start our mornings off doing a, what we call breakfast at Verge. So we all kind of get together and do a quick breathing exercise. And what that does is kind of gets everybody into a flow state so we can have good, productive conversations first thing in the morning, kind of get us kicked off. And the app's like $5, and it basically just makes everybody breathe at a similar pattern, um, which there's two different types of breathing. There's breathing that induces fight or flight, and there's breathing that induces kind of our synthetic, synth- parasympathetic system, which is our healing system. Um, which makes you feel calm, in flow, comfortable, ready to ready to kick butt. So um, that app is probably the app I use the most because I use it every morning. We do use it every morning. I I really enjoyed it, and um, I use it even when I'm not on the not working with the team. Yeah, and that's 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 a shout out to any entrepreneur who's listening to this. You know, when you we all get stressed out. Being an entrepreneur is an extremely difficult, challenging road sometimes. And when you start to get that high stress feeling, you start to get into fight or flight. All you got to do is take some calm, deep breaths, and an app like Pranayama, which makes it brainless, um, is a good thing to have because you have to stay present, focused, and not in fight or flight in order to make good decisions as an entrepreneur. So I really like those little hacks like that. Yeah, and certainly not just for entrepreneurs either. I mean, everybody yeah, anybody. Everybody deals with stress. Exactly. It's a, it's a great app. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, Dr. And, Dr. Alan Watkins is the guy who would be good to look at if you want to learn anything more about what I just said. Nice. We'll link that up in the show notes as well as Pranayama because I'm not going to try to spell that <laughs> here. Uh, Robert, do you have a, a something you spent? Because I don't think Inbox is a paid app, right? No. Uh, Amazon Echo. Ooh. Uh, there's an interesting one. Yeah. With my six-month-old son, uh, it's been valuable to be able to play background music for him to go to sleep uh, and then ask any number of questions. What's the time in Bangalore, India? Um you know what's the weather and uh, all those types of things. So and that time in Bangalore, India is really important to you, Robert. It is. Uh, <laughs> you know, have a development team that I work with on a variety of projects that uh, that that is out of Bangalore, India, and so they do uh, stay amazing work. With them. Uh, and it, yeah, the, they keep adding new features, um, and so that that's been pretty interesting. Have actually ordered some things 
you know, directly from that as it runs out, oh, reorder, you know, how uh, supplies for around the house. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's just almost scary uh, how low the barrier is now to buy something, uh, especially off of Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good product. That's a really good product. <laughs> Amazon's a good product. You, you know, it's interesting. I have an Echo, and I don't really use it. Yeah. I, it's probably out of the fear of just, like, making it too easy <laughs> yeah. to buy things. I'm not even, you know, the Echo is great. I don't even have one. Um, I'm just saying Amazon in general. Oh, what yeah. A, what a product. I mean, it, even back in the day when we used to, you know, look for best practices for e-commerce, we would just copy Amazon because we knew they were doing all the multivariant testing for us. Um, yep. And they just continue to be dominant. It's such... That's that's an amazing, amazing product. One of the things that's really interesting about that is, you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, look at Amazon's website, and depending on which variant you get, you might say, "Man, that's like kind of an ugly looking website." Um, but there, there's quite a bit, there's quite a bit to it. Um, there, there's a lot of psychological analysis uh, that goes on as far as you know how the how the product pages are constructed and things like that, but. But of course now, I mean, as I said, with the with the Echo and the Dash Wands and all those things, you don't even have to go to their site to buy from them. The, their their app has added a bunch of new features, and um, so it it's kind of incredible. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about waiting for voice recognition technology and and the adoption of it to catch up to what businesses are ready to do um, in terms of of culturally catching on. Uh, I think the other piece of that, too, that I'm really excited about is just the AI that's behind so much of that and uh, the machine learning aspect. I mean, I've, I have a real passion for AI and machine learning and, uh, and working on, you know, building that into the businesses uh, that I'm working with, you know, because I think that any business model that gets smarter automatically based on what customers are doing in a way that provides more value to all customers is really the the business model of the future and of, of today. So I, I see it, you know, being applied everywhere, at least in a, in a basic version. Yeah. And uh, it, it looks like it's the path to the future. And so, you know, getting on board. Even if um, businesses don't see a fit right now for AI, what are some ways that people could like educate themselves on what's possible um, or what are some thought experiments that could be done to think about, you know, does AI, artificial intelligence, or machine learning play into my business? I think that there are some great resources out there. You know, you can search. There's even podcasts on, you know, introductory guides to machine learning. I, I think uh, really I, I would challenge anyone, uh, you know, if you think that there is no place for it, that there probably is, you know, especially if there are parts of your business that have, you um, options and configuration parameters on, you know, how you, uh, or, or even a workflow and how you scale different resources. There's, you know, all you need is the data to be able to drive uh, a system to try to automatically, you know, re- recalibrate. The one area is obviously um, with medical uh, or anything that has like a life or death significance that, that there's a more of an ethical side to, you know, experimentation that you have to take into consideration. Um, but outside of those regulatory, you know, regulated industries, I think uh, now's the time to to at least experiment with, you know, what can be done with this technology. All right, last question for both of you before we go, Kevin. I'm going to pose this to you first. Uh, I know you read a lot of books. You both read a lot of books. We've talked about many of them. This is not a question I usually ask, but I'm particularly curious for you two guys, just because you're both such voracious readers. What are three books? And it doesn't have to be like the top three or anything like that. But like, what are three books that you feel like everyone like should at least read the first chapter of? All right, uh, "Singularity Is Near" by Ray Kurzweil. Why that one? Blew my mind for what the future is going to look like. Uh, I remember the particularly the first chapter. Yeah. I remember you know I, I got the book because I had heard he was a great futurist, and this was uh, ten. Seven years ago, or something like that, yep. when it first came out, and I read the first chapter, and I remember him talking about like great technology. You know, it basically like feels like magic, and then talking about you know that within the next thirty years, you may not be able to tell the difference between robots and humans, and reality and virtual reality, and travel the cosmos. I'm like thirty to forty years <laughs> in my lifetime is possible, and it, I just 
read that. New possibility. Yeah, it just blew my mind wide open. And what, I, what are the other two books? So one that I think is really important for for uh, business leaders is, I think I got the title right here, it's, I read it a while ago, Who Am I? Temperament, Personality, and Character by Kiersey. Hmm. Uh, really gets into Myers-Briggs personality types and takes takes the current paradigm all the way back to like um, the Greek, the Greeks and the four personality types that they had and then kind of works those forward. And it really gives you perspective on like, I don't know, I was one of these kind of people who I always thought of like, why does everybody think different than me? And it used to drive me a little bit crazy until I read that book and I was like, oh, because other people need to think differently than me and that's really important and I can they can be an extension of me and help me think better yep. because they see the world differently than I did. So. Kind of in the same vein as Please Understand Me. Actually, yeah, that's the right one. Oh, is that the it's title? Please understand me. Yeah, because nice. I knew I was getting the, the title wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I read that one on your recommendation years ago. Yeah. What'd you think? That's awesome. Worth revisiting. You, you got me inspired to go back and read it again. Yeah, and another book that, that has touched me lately, and I'm not saying it's like the best written book in the world or whatever, but it really has some solid information in there. Uh, I'm a big believer in um, conscious business practices. And I've referenced Dr. Alan Watkins before with the, the breathing stuff, but he wrote a book called Coherence, and it's about uh, conscious business leadership. He's a, he's a business coach, you know, to Fortune 500s and stuff around the world, and he really teaches leadership teams how to, how to think on a different level and um, gets into just best practices for, for running an effective culture that, that has staying power, um, getting into the human side of business. And uh, again, it's called Coherence. It's a, it's a good read. It really uh, opened my mind up a lot, too. Nice. I'll add that one to the list. Robert, how about you? Since we've been talking about product, uh, <laughs> nice. I would say the uh, uh, Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs, uh, whether in book or, or uh, so good. Uh, audio book, is a, is a great one um, to be inspired for what can be done when you're focused on product. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Yeah. Um, but really thinking about all of the different um, fallacies that we have in the human mind, you know, it, it's it's really quite amazing. And um, when you really understand that we have these sort of predispositions to certain ways of thinking that are not always in our best interests, um, it's really eye-opening, especially as you're thinking about marketing and, and, and taking advantage of those sort of mental loopholes, as well as protecting yourself as, from falling into certain pitfalls. Um, that's a really good one. And then there are several different books. It's it's very difficult for me to choose one in best practices related to ideation um, and what the process is for really taking ideas and then iterating on them and improving them and uh, combining them together in ways that you wouldn't have initially foreseen and, you know, uh, how to get this like melting pot type of effect. Yeah. You know? Like one of the benefits of working in a downtown environment is, you know, you have more cultural diversity, which means that you have more backgrounds to combine with your own and, and invent new businesses. So, you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that's exciting about downtown Indianapolis, for example, is that you now have this melting pot where people want to come downtown and then, you know, it's starting new businesses and you can see it right before your eyes. So I think books that deal with that topic are, are really interesting. A- any books in particular that come to mind? One one that I thought of is uh, Triumph of the City that um, Tony Shea gave to me. He had yeah. multiple copies on his bookshelf. Yeah. And he gave me one when I, when I visited there. And um, that that speaks directly to that point of density downtown. Yeah, there's something definitely about cities yeah. um, that creates a, a community and a, and a, a an opportunity space um, to thrive for, for an entrepreneurial community. Absolutely. Well, and it's really cool to uh, be building this technology with you guys um, that we've been talking about and and actually not talking about so far with the Verge community um, and just the power that the cities, all the cities that we're already in, all the cities that we're expanding into, just the power of that network that we're building. Uh, and it's great to have smart guys like you uh, leading the way on building that product. Um, I also want to give you a huge shout out, Robert, for not only pouring your heart and soul into this product, but the team that you've assembled. And they've worked with you for how many years? 13 years. 13 years from Bangalore, India, mm-hmm. on multiple projects. And um, for anyone that's listening here, um, I know this extends to the powder keg community. You've offered up, Robert, to work on a project or two 
outside of what we're launching right now uh, with Powder Keg and what we're unveiling at Verge on Thursday, I, that's a very generous offer and wanted to just give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about what kinds of problems um, you've solved in the past and when someone might want to call you up. Sure. Uh, what we love to do is help startups and scale-ups uh, get to the next level of their business, whether it's business strategy or technology strategy or, or implementation. Uh, most commonly, all those things combine together uh, in a very tight timeline and, and, and uh, efficient budget. Right? So if you have a, if you have a meeting uh, that you want to have a new version, whether it's presenting to your board or it's going to, your, to a beta group of customers and, and showing off your vision, or it, it's even an internal prototype, you know, we're uh, at MVP Launch Partners, uh, a, a good resource for tech companies to, you know, uh, talk with and, and uh, build out that initial version and see, you know, whether you can raise money or you can uh, get to the next level of your business. So um, work with a variety of different languages and tech stacks and, um, you know, be happy to, to talk with anybody who, ha who has an idea and needs a partner to make that idea a reality or just additional resources to a team that already exists as a, um, a way of uh, augmenting their team. Well, I, I feel so fortunate that our paths crossed um, and, and not just because you're our CTO now, but also just those early questions that you asked us when we weren't necessarily uh, going to be working full time together. Uh, and we were looking at maybe just consulting with you, um, really helping us think through this product um, and, and some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of platform, uh, you're approaching it from a very sophisticated level and that is invaluable when talking about building technology and building product. Well, thank you. I mean, any project that I work on, um, I really care about making sure that it's what the company wants, what the executive team board uh, wants and uh, really sort of embrace the, the vision as though I'm a full member of the team, uh, whether that actually ends up happening or uh, I just end up in a, in a consulting role. Um, I, f I feel in that way it gets more of the energy um, as to what the founders are all about uh, and spread that through the product and ultimately the customer experience. Absolutely. It shows. Robert, what's a good email to for a powder cake listener to reach you at if they want to talk about MVP Partners? Uh, well, I can go to mvplaunchpartners.com. Uh, or uh, robert at mvplaunchpartners.com uh, as an email address. Thanks, man. This has been a long time coming, and uh, hopefully this isn't our last one. Oh, yeah, man. Super oh, excited. Next yeah. time we got to grab beers. Yep. Definitely. Cool. Thank you. And for more stories on entrepreneurs, leaders, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. You'll want to subscribe because we have some great guests coming up, so don't miss it. We've also got a helpful companion website at powderkeg.com. You're going to find show notes there with all the links and contact information we mentioned in the episode, as well as some other useful articles and interviews from the Powder Keg community. So thanks for listening, and you'll be hearing from us real soon.